This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 117. And as the voice guy said, I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. On today's episode, Dr. Linda Porter joins us again. Now, the last time she was on, we chatted about Queen Mary I, Catherine Parr, and uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, and we also talked about some Stuarts as well. So if you want to check it out, I believe that was episode like 84. But today, Dr. Porter has returned to discuss with us her newest subject, Margaret Tudor. But this time, instead of answering my questions, she's answering yours. So these are the ones that you submitted on social media for Ask the Expert. Now, if you want to ask our experts a question, be sure to follow Tudor's Dynasty on social media so you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're an expert on the subject and you are an author or historian or PhD student, maybe a professor, and you would love to participate on the show, please contact me through social media. Or you can email me at um, Rebecca at TutorsDynasty.com. Now, I'm currently in the planning stages for my next season of interviews, and I'm keeping my mind wide open for topics outside of the Tudors. So think more medieval and possibly more Stuarts as well. Because, let's be honest, there is far more to history than just the scandalous Tudors. And really, to understand them, it's best to look at their past for the answers. Before we jump into Ask the Expert, I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Becky, Cecilia T., Deborah R., and Kendall C. In addition, a huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. You know, you guys, some days I get overwhelmed with all of the support that I've received since I began this in 2017, and it really does make me emotional sometimes. It's what keeps me going, so please continue to communicate with me about what you like and you don't like, because while it's fun for me, this show is for you and your friends, so be sure to tell your friends about it as well. Okay, enough about me. Let's learn more about Henry VIII's elder sister, Margaret Tudor, on Ask the Expert. And now, Ask the Expert. Welcome, everyone, to Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Storr, and I'm so happy to introduce you to today's guest. Uh, Here to discuss Margaret Tudor is author and historian Dr. Linda Porter. Welcome. Hello, Steph. Happy to talk to you. So as you know, we take our questions from our listeners and our social media followers. So today in particular, people are extremely interested in Margaret's personal relationships. So we're going to start off with our first question from Crystalline, uh, a listener who wonders how she got along with her paternal grandmother, for whom she was named Margaret Beaufort. I, I think Margaret Beaufort was an important influence on uh, Margaret Tudor, her granddaughter, um, probably an equal influence with, with Margaret's parents, and particularly her mother, Elizabeth of York. Uh, Mar- obviously, Margaret took an interest in all of her grandchildren, uh, but I think particularly the younger ones who were all together and brought up together in various palaces outside London in, in the southeast of England. Prince Arthur was away at Ludlow in the Welsh marches, and I don't think Margaret Beaufort ever had much to do with him, except at his christening and at his wedding to Catherine of Aragon. But the younger children she would have visited and seen fairly frequently. Uh, And her grandmother, as a woman who had 
been married so very young uh, and given birth at a, an almost ridiculously young age would have been a, an important figure in Margaret's childhood. Uh, and I think she became even more so after the um, unexpected and tragically early death of, of Margaret's mother, Elizabeth of York, in 1502. Because, of course, by that time, Margaret was technically Queen of Scots. She had been uh, betrothed and gone through the the sort of proxy marriage ceremony um, in London uh, at the end of her 12th year, which was um, the uh, minimum legal requirement age for a girl to marry in, in those days, uh, or at least, you know, to begin what would be a, a, a legitimate marriage. I mean, some children were married much younger than that, but most of those marriages were actually family connections which might or might not turn into a, a real marriage. But Margaret had taken her vows. Um, she had spent most but not all of the year after she, her proxy marriage with her mother. But on her mother's death, uh, which was within only a few months of when Margaret was due to Scotland, go to Scotland, that um, that particular journey was postponed for several months, I think probably to give Margaret time to get over the shock of her mother's death. And during those year, those months, her mother was, her grandmother was obviously uh, an influential figure and support. And it was from her grandmother's home of Collie Weston uh, in Northamptonshire. In fact, it's just south of Lincolnshire, so sort of in the East Midlands, that Margaret set off uh, in July of 1503 to begin her long journey north to her uh, actual wedding with James IV of Scotland. So Margaret's piety, her interest in cultural things and her interest in, in uh, the royal family as a unit, I think would have been important influences on Margaret as a child growing up. Okay, and now what about her sister, Mary? Douglas Breeden. Hi, Douglas. He's a listener that writes in almost every time, so we're happy to have our familiar names here. Uh, what about her sister, Mary, particularly before and after her marriage to Charles Brandon? What was their relationship like? Well, when they were children, it was one of an older sister with a younger sister, I think. I mean, they were brought up together uh, until the point of time in which Margaret became Queen of Scots. Uh, and from the year between her her proxy marriage and her departure for Scotland, Margaret probably spent more time with her mother and grandmother than she did with Mary. Uh, and there was quite an age gap. You know, Margaret was born in 1489, uh, Mary not until 1496. Uh, so it would have been very much that of an elder sister with a younger sister. Um, both of them would have at least known of Charles Brandon when they were children. Uh, he would have first come to their attention as a participant in the jousts uh, and tournaments after the marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur. Uh, I mean, but they were both children at the time and would probably have taken no more notice of him than they would of any other uh, courtier at, uh, at the time. Uh, when Margaret went to Scotland, I mean, she lost... Uh, much of her contact with her family, of course. Um, Mary was left in England while various marriage uh, arrangements were pursued for, for her, including one with the man who became Emperor Charles V, but, but nothing actually came of that. Uh, and the sisters 
probably exchanged letters, but if they did, uh, we don't have any that survived. Uh, when uh, Margaret's husband, James IV, was killed at the Battle of Flodden, uh, she was in communication with her sister, who, of course, went on to become very briefly Queen of France in her marriage to, to Louis XII. Uh, and and they, they were sort of supportive letters uh, at the time. But Margaret didn't see Mary again between 1503 and 1516 when she was in London for a bit over a year after she had fled from Scotland because of the political troubles there. So their relationship seems to have been largely a, a good one, uh, as far as we can tell. I don't think there was any kind of particular rivalry involved in it because both had been queen consorts uh, in major European countries, I mean, arguably Mary in a more important and influential one than Margaret. But Mary's tenure as Queen of, of France was so brief uh, that although she always kept the title of the French Queen afterwards, it, it, it didn't have a great deal of um, meaning, really, apart from reinforcing her status. Uh, the sisters did spend time in each other's country company between 15, 16 and 17, while Margaret was back in London. Um, thereafter, I don't think we know anything uh, about their relationship. Uh, while Margaret was keen to maintain a political presence in Scotland, Mary doesn't seem to have been so keen to retain uh, any kind of um, meaningful role in England other than that as the Duchess of Suffolk and, and the King's younger, young, youngest sister. Uh, so I, I, while I don't think there was any animosity between them, we really can't say very much about their relationship in the years between Margaret's return to Scotland in 1517 and Mary's death in 1533. I mean, Mary has always seemed to me to be someone who, while not exactly wanting to take a back seat, uh, enjoyed the life of a country lady and bringing up her children in Suffolk. She did come to court, um, I think, with decreasing frequency. And, of course, she disapproved of Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, um, but she died not very long after it. Uh, so uh, the, the sisters would have lost touch completely by the, well, I say completely by the early 1530s. They're, they may have corresponded, but again, um, we don't know. Uh, and certainly there isn't any surviving evidence of it. But But it was a uh, an apparently positive uh, relationship um, for much of the time that they knew each other and were in each other's company. Speaking of her sister, Mary, um, Mary was actually unfortunately known or seems to have the reputation of the favorite of their brother, Henry VIII. Do you know why this was and why do you think it wasn't Margaret? I don't know how well-founded that reputation is, in fact. Um, I mean, it's merely probably that, that Mary spent more time in Henry's company, uh, ultimately, than, than Margaret had ever done. Um, if, if it's true, um, then one possible reason, I think, actually goes back to uh, the time when Margaret was Queen of Scots but still living in uh, England. And, of course, during that period... Um, uh, because she was a queen, her brother would have had to um, give deference to her. Uh, she was a more important person than him. 
in the hierarchy of things. And it, it has been said, though, for the life of me, I mean, it's one of these things that you know you've read somewhere, but I've been looking for it recently because I've been about to write about this. And, of course, as is always the case, I can't immediately find it, though there are a variety of people I will ask because I'm sure one of them will know. It, it, there was commentary at the time that Henry had greatly resented the fact that his, he, he, he had to give preference to his sister that, um, because she was a queen. Um, but whether that's true or not, I don't think we, we absolutely know. I mean, I suppose one might always have a certain um, soft spot for a younger sister as opposed to an older one. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think there's a great deal of evidence one way or the other. There is some evidence in the way Henry actually treated his sister subsequently once she was in Scotland and, and certainly during her husband's reign and after his death. Henry's relationship with uh, with Margaret was a, a rather difficult one. I mean, it, it is rather a classic case, I think, of sibling rivalry. Uh, but I, I think he probably had a softer spot for Mary because she was the the sibling that he knew better, really, than his older sister. Thank you very much to Beth Hunt and Al Pratt. I'm sorry I didn't mention your names when I asked that question. So now we're going to look ahead to Margaret's marriage to James IV of Scotland. And again, this is another question that we've got from Jody Field asking if you could give us a little bit of insight into what the relationship was like between the two. But most specifically, if you could give us um, some information about several illegitimate children that he had. And did Margaret participate in their upbringing? And was uh, the fact that he had so many illegitimate children, did it affect their marriage at all? Uh, it doesn't seem to have um, in in any very obvious way. Yes, James had quite a number of illegitimate children already by the time he married Margaret. I, I think it, it would be wrong to assume that she didn't know about this. Uh, I, I mean, one tends from sort of popular histories and historical fiction of the past to have this feeling that Margaret arrived in, in Scotland not knowing anything very much about her husband or his personal life prior to their marriage, or, or what sort of a man he was. I think that's very hard to believe. Uh, I, I imagine she had been briefed, um, perhaps albeit tactfully, uh, by uh, people who knew uh, as to what she could expect uh, when she got there. I mean, the only thing we do know, I mean, I don't think she played any part in their upbringing. Um, James would have taken that upon himself. Uh, and, and a number of them were brought up with their mothers at any rate, though uh, at the time that, that Margaret married James, a number of them were living in Stirling Castle, which was being used as a kind of de facto royal nursery for the illegitimate offspring. Uh, and as it was always the dower castle of um, uh, Scottish Queen's consort, uh, Margaret does seem to have uh, insisted that these children be removed pretty quickly. Uh, she spent a fair amount of time uh, always in Stirling Castle, which was clearly a residence that she liked very much. Uh, and and uh, if she did put her foot down, um, albeit perhaps not too heavily, uh, James certainly responded with alacrity and the children were removed and did not return there. Um, so, no, there's no evidence that she took any part in their upbringing, um, probably because in, well, not in all of the cases, but in the majority of cases, their their, their mothers were still alive um, and there was sufficient 
economic support from the king to to, to bring them up um, as royal bastards, basically, um, which meant that you were a lot better off than perhaps most ordinary people. Um, her relationship with James of Scotland is in uh, James the Fourth of Scotland is an interesting one. Uh, because, of course, she was very young um, when she arrived as his wife. Um, she was 13 when they actually married and had her 14th birthday a, a few months later. He uh, treated her with a great deal of respect uh, and affection uh, and certainly made sure that she had all the trappings and accoutrements of a queen consort. He wanted uh, a woman... Um, who would uh, do him justice as an appropriate uh, consort to sit beside him on the Scottish throne. Uh, he gave her lands and money and jewels uh, and all the magnificent sort of clothing that she wanted. But I think more than that, um, there is a great deal of evidence uh, as the 10 years of their marriage progressed uh, that he had uh, successfully trained her in the role of queen consort now, her mother and grandmother had given her a, a very sound background in the roles of what a, a queen consort was expected to do. Uh, and um, certainly there was no great difference between that and, and uh, between a queen consort of England and a queen consort of Scotland, except perhaps that a queen consort in Scotland, because of the way the Stuart monarchy functioned, was expected to be more visible. Uh, and to accompany her husband on things like pilgrimages, which could be to any of the four corners of Scotland and involve uh, a lot of travelling. And Margaret did travel a lot with James. And beyond that, of course, she was expected to um, produce children, which she did, though none of them lived until James V, who was born in 1512. Uh, I mean, it, it's... I don't think it, that enough comparisons are made sometimes between the situation of James the Fourth and Margaret Tudor in Scotland and uh, Henry the Eighth and Catherine of Aragon in England, because uh, Margaret had had just as many sort of stillbirths, deaths of babies, miscarriages, etc., as her sister-in-law, or, or about the same at any rate. But the great difference was that Margaret was a lot younger than her husband, 17 years younger, in fact, whereas Catherine of Aragon was, of course, nearly six years older than Henry VIII. And in the balance of, of you know, how this would pan out in terms of, of heirs, um, then it was certainly the case that Margaret produced um, a, a son who finally survived in, in James V uh, at a time when her brother did not have a male heir. And of course, during all the time that Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII were trying to produce children, his heir was Margaret Tudor. Uh, and uh, this, I think, made Henry uncomfortable because it meant in practice that if he died, or even if um, one of their children died in, in childhood, which was quite likely, then the throne would pass to his sister on Henry VIII's death and in practice her, her husband. Um, who would, you know, certainly have had a major role to play in the government of England. So it is quite a tense situation. But I think James had trained Margaret very well for her role as his queen consort. Uh, he made sure that she looked the part, that she understood what, what was expected of her, that she 
played her role in the cultural and religious life of, of Scotland. Certainly, she referred to him in her letters to Henry VIII, uh, you know, in a way which leaves little doubt that, that um, it was a close working partnership and relationship. Uh, and uh, James had sufficient confidence in her, of course, to leave her as regent uh, for his for their son, were he to be killed or, or to die. And, of course, that is precisely what happened, though it didn't necessarily, of course, pan out in the way that either of them would have anticipated subsequently. Uh, but it, 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 if, if not a relationship of deep um, and passionate love, it was certainly one of mutual affection and respect, I think, um, and, and a tribute perhaps to both of them. Uh, in the um, successful 10 years of their marriage, um, which, of course, sadly ended with a, uh, a desperately anguished um, finality when James was killed at Flodden. Well, I was going to focus some more on Margaret and James's marriage because we got to that portion. But now that we've touched a little bit on Catherine Varagon, I'm just going to switch gears for a little bit and then we're going to come back to that. But I'm going to go to Rabid Monkey's question about Margaret's relationship with Catherine of Aragon, given kind of what you said, their similar experiences with pregnancy and childbirth and things like that. Did they talk to each other very often? Were they close? Or was this more, you know, you live there, I live in Scotland? were separate? I don't think they were particularly close. Um, remember, Margaret had only met Catherine of Aragon briefly um, at Catherine's marriage to Prince Arthur. I mean, Catherine was in Ludlow um, when Arthur died, uh, and uh, certainly Margaret had, had not seen her since she left London in December 1501 to move with her husband to the, the Welsh marches. Um, and uh, as far as I can recall, Catherine of Aragon didn't return to London until uh, after uh, Margaret Tudor had left for, for Scotland. So it would have been a very brief encounter then. Um, uh, whether they communicated subsequently, again, we don't know. Uh, I mean, the, the interesting thing about this is that Margaret was the most prolific letter writer of any of the Tudor monarchs. She left behind a, a body of letters, um, which is far greater than that of any other monarch of the Tudor period. Um, but her, many of her personal letters are probably lost. Uh, there, there could have been possibly, you know, dozens, if not scores of others, but um, a, a boat, or oh, ship rather, bringing... Um, many of the Scottish records down from um, Scotland to England during the interregnum, the period between the death of Charles I and, and the restoration of Charles II, this ship foundered and sunk with all of these documents on board. So a, a huge repository of, of knowledge and information was lost forever to us for that, which is very sad. And the letters of Margaret that survive are, are almost all in English sources. Um, the, there are virtually none left in Scotland. Uh, so uh, we don't know whether they communicated at all during the period that, that Margaret was queen in Scotland. Uh, I imagine they perhaps did so, though not necessarily very often, because their experiences and, and obligations would have been quite time-consuming. Even though Margaret was an inveterate letter writer, 
Uh, I think her, her husband would have asked, you know, what she was writing about, probably. Um, that isn't to say that she would have been barred from writing, but uh, probably she didn't see a great deal of, of need, I, I would have thought, to, to keep in touch at that time. I mean, after Flodden, uh, Catherine wrote her uh, what I think most of us would consider to be an extraordinarily patronising and off-putting letter, sort of offering to send a, a friar up to comfort her. Uh, and, well, she had, Catherine had said to Henry VIII, well, you know, James IV got what he deserved. Uh, and this is kind of implicit in this, oh, I'm so sorry for you kind of letter from uh, Catherine. Um, um, and we don't... Um, know how how Margaret responded to it. Um, we know that she did, though, because it's referred to in in other sources, but the what she actually said, which could have been shove off, get lost, <laughs> we really don't know. Uh, I imagine it was more... Um, That's more fun to think about, though. <laughs> it was more tactful than that, I suspect. Uh, but anyhow, as far as we know, she declined the offer, having confessors and friars of her own that she could turn to for spiritual support. Um, whether this was Catherine of Aragon trying to be clever at her sister-in-law's expense or whether it was genuinely something in which the woman was torn because she had been delighted by James IV's death but, but, but felt sorry for his widow, we, we don't really know. I mean, I, I have a certain admiration for Catherine of Aragon, but her, her behaviour over James IV's death is... is not particularly um, creditable, I, I think. Um, and certainly after that, yes, when Margaret came down to England for her year and a bit, um, uh, when she left Scotland in 1515, uh, she did meet with, with Catherine of Aragon and her sister Mary, and they attended a number of spectacles and, and uh, sporting events and things like that together. Um how close they were in practice, we don't know. Of course, in 1516, Catherine of Aragon herself gave birth to a child who would survive, Princess Mary, but not ever to a male heir that survived. Whereas Margaret had one and initially two in Scotland, her, her younger son. She, Margaret was pregnant uh, with another child when um, James IV was killed. Uh, it's perhaps possible that she didn't know when he set off for Flodden, but she would certainly have known that she was pregnant by the time that the battle took place and subsequently. But her younger her younger son by James, Alexander, um, died at the age of just about two, and Margaret was in England at the time and had not seen him for, for quite a while. Um, but, I mean, crucially, she had produced the surviving male heir, whereas Catherine of Aragon had not. And even though there were hopes that, that further children would follow um, Princess Mary after 1516, there was a pregnancy, but it, it, it ended in either a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Um, and uh, after that, there were no more children. Of course, James V's tenure on the throne of Scotland as a toddler uh, might have been viewed as, as at least rather problematic, but of course he did survive. Uh, so I, I think there was always that, perhaps that underlying tension between the sisters-in-law that, you know, I 
I may have had to flee my country and I'm not um, necessarily thrilled at the idea of going back, which was undoubtedly Margaret's point of view. But by the way, you know, I have produced a son who's a king, whereas you haven't got a male heir. Uh, And that kind of thing does make for tension, particularly in the early 16th century. And back to your point, I think we're also used to the historical fiction representations that we have in our heads that they, you know, fought and they were jealous of each other and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it does let people ask us the questions so we can talk about it here, right? So I don't think they had a lot of reason apart from the tension over perhaps, um, you know, who would produce a surviving male heir first. But beyond that, I don't think they had a lot of reason to be jealous of each other. Uh, I mean, they, they led entirely separate lives and both would have been uh, viewed by the outside world as, as well. M- Margaret's was tricky, of course, by the mid-15, sort of uh, uh, 15 teens. Um, uh, and Catherine's was not, of course, going to get any better, though it would be a long time before um, her marriage to Henry VIII finally fell apart. Uh, but I think there's just the distance in time and the different priorities of the two women, um, which would have meant they were not, necessarily um, at daggers drawn, but that they were not particularly close either. So then we can come back around then to the point where we can ask things beyond just her relationships with her peers and such. But now with regard to her marriage, there are speculations about when the marriage was actually con- uh, consummated. So what do we know for sure about that? And is it true that James wore a silis, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, a hair shirt around his waist that was missing after the battle? Okay, there are various points mingled in there. Um, Firstly, we don't know anything about the sexual details of Margaret and James's marriage, really anything more than we do of any other royal couple at the time. Um, People didn't talk about these things. Uh, But I think there are uh, two things to be distinguished, first of all, about the first part of the question. There is a difference between consummating a marriage and getting someone pregnant, Um, which even in the 16th century, with all its rather um, uh, backward and naive views of um, uh, female gynaecology, uh, wasn't necessarily quite that stupid uh, about... um, what it took to get someone pregnant and also how this could be avoided. I would think the marriage was almost certainly consummated um, shortly after the wedding in some shape or form without going into um, huge detail as to what that might have been uh, because it wouldn't... You probably figure that part out. (laughs) Figure that part out, yes. Uh, because um, it wouldn't have been viewed as a proper marriage otherwise in in religious law, you know, and it would have been open to the possibility of um, annulment uh, if either party had chosen to, um, uh, at some point, to make a fuss about it. Um, Since that didn't happen, I would think the the betting money would be that... that, um, James certainly knew what he was doing with men in with women. Sorry, not men. He doesn't seem to be interested in men in the slightest. Uh, with with women <laughs> in in bed, uh, and I think you must give him credit uh, for realizing that the marriage had to be consummated, but that this was a very young girl, 
uh, and that getting her pregnant would really not be very clever, uh, particularly as this had been brought home to him about as as specifically uh, as it could be in earlier letters from Henry VII, in which he, because James had been keen to have the marriage take place, you know, when Margaret was much younger, and Henry essentially said to him, look, come off it. My um, mother, who has a lot of experience of what happens when you marry too young, uh, and um, my wife are, are just concerned that, you know, we're, we're not going to um, send essentially a child bride to you. Now, now we can have a lot of arguments about whether uh, a, a girl going north to her husband at the age of 13 is a child bride. And certainly in, in modern parlance, she is. But in the royal families and aristocracies of Europe in early 16th century, she was not. Uh, and many people in those sort of social classes did marry very young. I mean, sometimes the the boys were only 14 or 15 when they married. What was far less um, acceptable uh, and happened far less uh, was for the very young bride to become pregnant until she was at least in about the middle of her teens. Uh, Because people did know that, you know, this could be avoided um, uh, and um, knew, knew basically how to avoid it. Of course, you could get it wrong sometimes. But whereas um, Margaret Beaufort's husband, Edmund Tudor, had obviously been desperately keen to get her pregnant as soon as possible because it it tightened his grip on her inheritance and her lands. Uh, I mean, it it put him literally in control of her body and her her finances in in a much more concrete way. Uh, I mean, James IV didn't need that kind of of reassurance with Margaret. He was already a a king. Uh, And certainly Margaret did not give birth to her first child until she was 16. Uh, which was probably just as well because she she I don't know that her pregnancy was that difficult, but certainly the birth was pretty awful, uh, and she only just about survived it. And James went on pilgrimage to the north of Scotland to give thanks at, at, at a shrine there for her survival. So she was very unwell after her first delivery. Uh, and seems to have been unwell in some of the subsequent deliveries as well. But she did her duty valiantly. After she was 16, she was pregnant most years until the, the birth of uh, uh, of James V in, in, in 1512. Um, uh, and she seems to have been fertile enough, but the children either didn't survive or were still born and weren't carried to full term. And she had a variety of boys and girls, but only James V and then his younger brother, Alexander, and subsequently, of course, in her marriage to um, the Earl of Angus, Margaret Douglas, they were the only ones who actually survived. But actually, having two surviving children to grow to adulthood, as she eventually did, was not a bad um, tally for those times. I mean, you could be pregnant umpteen times, but if you had, you know, two or three children who survived who were healthy, then, you know, you were considered to have been successful, sadly enough. Uh, so in, in terms of the, um, uh, of whether the marriage was consummated, I mean, nobody knows, and certainly nobody would have spoken about it. I think you were supposed uh, you know, to produce evidence on the um, bedding subsequently that something had taken place. But um, 
uh, and and it probably would have been commented on. I mean, the the only thing that we know is that the um, Somerset Herald, who'd accompanied Margaret on her journey north, um, did not, of course, go into any details about the wedding night, but said that, you know, at the end of the wedding feast subsequently, the king had the queen apart and they went together. That is all he said. He doesn't talk about any elaborate bedding ceremonies or Margaret being prepared by her ladies or anything like that. Uh, But I think you must assume that Margaret did not go up there um, wondering what on earth men and women did in bed. I I think she would have known and known what to expect. Uh, And um, she and James seem to have handled it very well. Uh, As to the hair, shirt and the belt stories, these appear in... Scottish chronicles of the time, it was certainly said um, by or commented on that that James wore a uh, sometimes wore a hair shirt. I don't know whether he wore it all the time. I mean, to be truthful, things like that didn't go very well under you know cloth of gold and various other magnificent um, textiles that kings were supposed to um, to wear. So the thought that he might have worn it daily, I think, is, is fanciful. The same thing probably applies to the, the iron belt. And the iron belt story stems from um, the way that James IV came to the throne, which he did as a teenage rebel against his own father in 1488. Uh, and, and he had joined and been supported by a group of rebels who disliked the policies and the manner of rule of his father, James III of Scotland. Uh, and eventually they literally, um, you know, came to, to fight it out. Uh, and James had the fourth had given orders that, you know, his father was not to be harmed. Uh, but James was undoubtedly killed on the field of, of Sorkyburn in in. 1488, and appears to have been killed, perhaps trying to leave the battlefield um, by person or persons unknown. All we know is that he was dead at the end of the battle uh, and that um, James IV, his son, uh, who was 14 at the time, he was 15 shortly afterwards, uh, does seem to have been genuinely remorseful. Um, The uh, iron belt may have been um, a bit of a PR exercise, if you see what I mean. Um, But it probably did exist. And no doubt James wanted it known on certain occasions that he wore both it and the hair shirt. Uh, The concept that he wore this on a daily basis, I think, is bordering on the ridiculous, quite frankly. (laughs) Thank you, Techno, for that question, actually. (laughs) And thank you for the answer, actually, because that's uh, very helpful to to understand the kind of PR aspect of it. That's funny that you uh, worded it that way. So now the Tudor age asks us, given the record that Scottish regents had for ruling young monarchs, did Margaret truly believe that she would have been a good regent for James V? I should have thought if she looked back at what had happened um, to some of the uh, Scottish monarchs in the 15th century, she would have had every reason to suppose that she could she could do at least as well, if not better. Uh, I mean, in order to answer this question, I will have to to diverge briefly on, on uh, what had happened prior to uh, Margaret, um, because Scottish history is uh, very complicated politically. Um, it's often rather um, simplistically divided into sort of 
nasty, thuggish nobles uh, and um, unfortunate children. And it is true that between um, the late, um, uh, well, no, between the early uh, 15th century, when James I of Scotland came to the throne, uh, and the year 1625, when Charles I became King of Scotland, no monarch uh, had attained their majority by the time um, that that they became King or in Mary Queen of Scots' case, Queen. Uh, and while it's all very well to, to be sort of horrified um, by the the circumstances of, of Scotland and to rant and rail against the Scottish nobility, the sheer fact of the matter is that they held the country together for a hell of a long time um, and did so perhaps with um, varying degrees of success. Um, but, uh, I mean, more recently there has been a move away from the, you know, all Scots noblemen were thugs. I, I remember Professor Julian Goodair, who's Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh, saying to me when I was writing my book on the rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts, um, which is what ultimately, you know, gave me the idea to write more about Margaret Tudor. Please do not portray the Scottish nobility as unprincipled thugs. Um, well, there is much more to them than that. And while some of them were unprincipled thugs, so were most nobility in that respect throughout Europe. Uh, Aren't they all? Yeah. It is not something unique to Scotland. Um, however, um, James James the First uh, had had um, people who were ultimately supposed to rule on his behalf, and I think it's fair to say didn't. Um, when he died, and of course he was murdered at Perth, um, largely because um, some of the Scottish nobility didn't like the way he was governing. I mean, he, essentially he tried to wrest control back to the crown, um, which is something which is not surprising at the time. But the manner in which he did it um, enraged a number of influential people and eventually he was murdered. Uh, and his son, James II of Scotland, was only a child of about six uh, uh, or so at the time. Uh, and his mother, the Englishwoman Joan Beaufort, um, ruled briefly as regent, but ran into some of exactly the same problems that, that Margaret Tudor was to run into. Firstly, she was English, uh, and secondly, she was a woman. Uh, and also she, you know, Margaret is often criticised for the way she behaved, but I mean, both, I think both she and Joan didn't have very much option, really. Uh, but Margaret didn't hold on to power for very long, um, though she sort of flitted in and out of Scottish politics for quite a long time afterwards. And, and then, of course, um, James III um, came to the throne as a child when his father went too close to a, a cannon at Roxburgh Castle um, and, and got uh, unfortunately blown up for it. But although she was only briefly uh, regent, um, James III of Scotland's mother, um, Mary of Gelders, who was, well, now we would say a Belgian princess. She was a niece of the Duke of Burgundy. Uh, she ruled briefly as regent, but ruled very well before her death. So she was a precedent that Margaret would have known of uh, and been aware of. Um, uh, and subsequently, of course, James IV, when he came to the throne, didn't actually have regencies. Uh, he was king, but he had a council uh, that advised him. Uh, and, eventually, and they trained him pretty well, I think. And eventually he learned how to work with them and they with him. And it made him one of the most um, 
successful and impressive of all Scottish monarchs. Uh, so I, I don't think there was necessarily that in the background of, of Scotland in the 15th century, um, which would have made Margaret think that she couldn't do a job, good job of being regent. And I mean, for God's sake, this woman is a Tudor. They don't think in that kind of way. I mean, which Tudor monarch can you name to me who would think, I wonder if I can do this? I can't think of one, can you? Definitely not. Definitely not. They're all pretty confident, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it goes with the role and the training. And I think she thought, as indeed her husband thought, um, that he had prepared her against what would have seemed to both of them the unlikelihood of this role. Uh, but, of course, James had put upon her the stricture um, which she eventually and unwisely, there were there are reasons that she did it, I think, dispensed with, um, uh, which was that she would be regent for her son so long as she remained unmarried. Uh, and, and this wasn't unique to Margaret. I mean, this was the kind of stricture put on on um, widowed queens uh, because the the um, difficulties that ensue from remarriage, James IV would obviously see. Uh, and while... Um, the Scottish nobility was difficult to deal with. I, I think most other female monarchs, uh, female queen's consort, all queen's consorts are female, Linda, uh, all other queen's consort would, would have um, been subject to the same kind of restrictions. Now, why Margaret um, uh, decided in the end um, that she could not live with that uh, particular restriction is something which I'm quite willing to talk about. Well, that was a perfect uh, little Scottish history lesson that I think we all love. Yeah, sorry, tangent. so yes, no, we love it. That's perfect. That's what you're here for. But one of the that's why you know, that's why you're the expert. <laughs> one of the things that struck me about the questions was that y you can't answer some of them without knowing a bit more about the background of Scottish history, um, because you know it's not just personal relationships; it's the context in which these come to fruition and take place um that explains quite a lot of what these people did i think and we do sure, and in general it's yes yeah. you can't really answer something about now without knowing what happened first right no or, or what else is going on around it i think um i think one of the the points i would make in in general is that we do have a tendency now to think that the tudors were just like us but in fancy dress and they were not just like us. Believe me, people, they were not just like us. I but certainly well, don't have that impression. <laughs> no, um, but some people do, I think. And I think it's perpetuated by historical novels and inaccurate films. I mean, some of uh, anything that interests people in history is fine. But when it gives them such a sort of 21st century view of the past, then, then I think it, it does need to be corrected. And I think it's one of my roles as a historian to, to try and do that, but in an interesting rather than, you know, you don't know what the hell you're talking about kind of way. So that's what I hope I might have done with my brief history lesson on 15th century Scotland, which might drive some Scots up the wall, incidentally. I hope it doesn't, because I think it was mostly right. No, I think it was perfect. So, okay, so then we're just going to stop listening to the historical novels and you know, inaccurate movies and stuff like you said. But when we're looking at her marriages, I feel like there's a lot of focus on that in all of the historical fiction, right? That we look at and that we read and things like that. So Mary Lou 
writes in and asks us, which of her three husbands do you think that she had the most successful relationship with? And possibly furthermore, why uh, do you think that she even entered into the second two? That, that's in, yeah, it's a good question. I think without doubt the, the most successful uh, and for her most um, satisfying uh, of her marriages would have been that to James IV of Scotland. He was an extraordinary man, you know, a hugely uh, learned, um, restlessly interested in all kinds of things new, cultured, um, a, a linguist. He understood his people very well. He knew about public image. He wanted to make Scotland more important in Europe to to uh, to make it a, a, you know, all right, he knew it was a, a small and in many respects impoverished country, but he wanted to give it a place on the European scene. And in, in that, he, he succeeded absolutely. And that was not lost with his death, despite the chaos and, and confusion that followed. So I, I think... Uh, Margaret had been 10 years um, the wife of a quite extraordinary man, one of the great Renaissance kings of Britain. Uh, and and to lose him suddenly uh, must have been uh, a, a, an extraordinarily difficult and traumatic thing to deal with, especially if you recall for a woman who was pregnant at, at the time. Uh, the... Uh, the marriage with uh, Angus was undoubtedly a huge mistake. And although it's often criticised as, you know, you, you stupid woman, why didn't you realise what this was going to happen? You were breaking the terms of your husband's will, etc. Um, it, it, it is more complicated than that. Um, and also, uh, I mean, it's often overlooked. I think that the marriage was a disaster on, on a personal level to Angus. I think within a matter of months, she realised um, that they simply, you know, were going to fight a lot and and, and didn't get along. Uh, you, you have to look at Margaret's circumstances at the time when she married um, uh, the Earl of Angus, um, Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus, in, in the summer of 1514. Um, she had two small sons, one of whom was king and the other of whom would, of course, been um, the, the the heir at the time, young as he was. Uh, she already knew that there had been um, moves amongst some of her councillors, despite their professing loyalty. There had already been moves and discussions uh, to replace her as regent whatever the terms of her husband's will were, by John Stuart, Duke of Albany, uh, who had been born in France, um, was cousin, first cousin to, to James I, and was the, I mean, sorry, to James IV of Scotland, uh, and was the nearest male heir. He didn't know anything about um, uh, Scotland. Um, I should doubt that he could speak um, Scots at all. Um, he was certainly French-speaking. I mean, it's often overlooked, I think, one of the things just to go back a little bit is that Margaret in Scotland had to learn a different language. She didn't learn Scottish Gaelic, of which her husband spoke. He was the last, James IV was the last King of Scotland to speak 
Gaelic. Uh, but Margaret learnt Scots. Now, people in England would tell you that, that Scots is a dialect. People in Scotland would be offended by that, I think. And there is, I think, some move to reintroduce it in schools there. Believe me, if you have to read it, it ain't easy, but you can you can learn to, to read it. Um, in fact, it, if you read it out loud, it's easier to, to sort of understand than if you just sit on a page looking at it. Uh, but um, I think, you know, knowing that her, her situation was not secure, um, her pregnancy had somewhat sidelined her from politics anyhow, especially as, as it went on. She did attend quite a number of council meetings in the earlier phases of her pregnancy, but that grew more difficult later on. Um, and, and of course, um, giving birth and, and then having to, to stay out of the public eye and all that until you were churched and everything, that, that took her away at a crucial period of time. Um, and also, she could not be sure of the support of Henry VIII in any way. She couldn't be sure whether he would support her politically, whether he would support her financially, whether he would support her militarily. He hummed and hard and blew sort of hot and cold about this. Um, so, you know, this is a woman in, a, uh, in 1514 in, a, in quite um, a vulnerable situation. Uh, and what may have happened is not that she ran up panting after Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus, thinking, cool, you know, here's a good looking young man. Incidentally, they were both the same age. So it, it isn't the kind of um, going after a younger man that, that used to be depicted in, in the past. They were both the same age and they both lost a spouse. He, he was a widower and she was a widow. It, it isn't as simple as that. Um, it would there is some inference from the surviving records and the timing of the marriage and the way the Douglas family behaved that they perhaps brought pressure on Margaret at a time that she was vulnerable and said, look, you know, your majesty, if you want to be certain of your position here in Scotland for the future, here is a, um, you know, a handsome and available, well, I don't know quite how handsome Angus was actually, but I think he was probably reasonably good looking young man Um uh, and through our family connections, we will be able to support you. Uh, it, it was a mistake. Um, if Margaret had held her nerve, we don't know what would have happened. Um, I mean, whether ultimately she would have been given the old heave-ho by the Scottish Council, the Lords and Council, uh, and John Stuart would have been brought over anyhow. But the marriage um, to Angus precipitated the arrival of, of John Stuart, Duke of Albany. Uh, it wasn't universally supported by the Scottish Lords, incidentally. Um, Margaret had a, a body of support uh, all of the time uh, and, and subsequently of, of people there who did espouse her cause, but but they were outnumbered by people who had, I think, always thought that this wasn't a fit rule for a woman, particularly one with two small children, um, though, of course, queens did not bring up children in the personal way that mothers do now in those days. But it, I, I think it was a combination of factors, and not just the fact that this is a silly, empty-headed young woman who um, sort of has seen another man and thinks, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be married to him? I mean, this is the stuff of historical ignorance and historical fiction. Uh, and, and I think one might well ask, what would you have done in that situation, which is a very difficult question for any of us to answer, that it was a mistake Margaret knew very quickly. 
of course, as I said, not just for political reasons, but also for personal ones. And she spent um, the period between 1514 and 1528 regretting it bitterly and moaning about it a good deal to her her brother, Henry VIII, who ultimately, of course, in, in his classic way of not quite knowing what to do about Scotland, sided with Angus against Margaret, um, which caused Margaret a great deal of displeasure and anguish, as you can imagine. So it, it's it's very easy to be clever and say, this is a silly, shallow woman um, who um, married um, for personal pleasure where Angus is concerned. It, it is much more complicated than that. As far as the third marriage to uh, yet another Stuart, almost everyone in, in Scotland had some some relationship to a person with the surname of Stuart. Henry Stuart, um, who Margaret seems to have begun an affair with in sort of 1526 to 1527, uh, by which time her marriage to Angus had broken down irretrievably, despite the occasional attempt on her side to uh, uh, to to resurrect it. Um, I mean, what was she to do? Her husband had spent all her money, had denied her her lands and her incomes and rents from them. Um, women, um, even those with the title of queen, were in a very difficult position in, in, in those days when it came to managing their finances, all of which Margaret might have been able to do better, I agree, had she remained unmarried. And, of course, the one example of what she might have done, though you can hardly follow the example of someone who, uh, you know, comes after you, is Mary of Guise, who um, didn't become regent for her daughter until 1556, um, years after Mary had come to the throne, but who um, managed to maintain a role as the queen's mother and the person who would bring up this child. And, of course, carefully manoeuvred to have her sent to France um, in when she was four and a half. And that did uh, keep Mary of Guise in an influential role in Scotland. But, of course, times had changed by then. Uh, and it, that appears to that kind of gamble seems to have been one that Margaret Tudor either didn't consider or didn't think would work. But by the time she married um, her third husband, Henry Stuart, um, for which she eventually got a papal dispensation, um, much to her uh, brother Henry VIII's um, horror, you know, this was not a way that people should behave, even at the time that he was starting to think of getting rid of Catherine of Aragon. And he, his... his uh, his hypocrisy is almost breathtaking in the way that he he um, wagged his finger at his sister over this sort of thing. Uh, but Margaret had, um, I mean, I, the the third marriage was a marriage, I think, of infatuation on on her side. I suppose by that time she was nearly forty. She had. Um, she had the justification of thinking that she might be happy. Henry Stuart, who later became Lord Mevan, had become had, was a member of her household, uh, and you no know, seems to have risen high in her esteem and uh, affection. He also betrayed her, of course, with another woman eventually. So uh, it has to be said, I would agree that when left to her own devices, Margaret did not make good choices in the manner of husbands, uh, in the matter of husbands. But certainly in the case of Angus, there are reasons for it that many people have been unwilling or unable to acknowledge in the past. I think at this point we have sufficiently exhausted the details of all of her relationships with the people around her. So I'm going to switch gears now and not ask anything about 
the relationships, but we're going to take a look at the portrait that we see uh, when we tweet, actually the one that I used when we yeah. tweeted out looking for um, questions for today. So all you really have to do, I'm, I apologize, I don't actually know who the artist was, but if you do a quick just Google search of Margaret Tudor, you'll see her holding a monkey. Is this significant in any way? Or, you know, you could even just say, oh, no, she just needed to put her hands on something. So what was the significance of her and the monkey in the picture? Uh, it, it's not significant in any symbolic way. Um, it's a marmoset, I think. Um, uh, it, it's a sign of wealth and power and status. Um uh, royal families in, in Europe, not just in, in Scotland or even just in England, um, uh, had a, a, a particular interest in exotic pets at the time. This goes on well into the 17th century, incidentally. I don't think it stopped in Britain until about the time of the Hanoverians. Uh, but, you know, lions at the Tower of London and and all this this sort of thing, um, it, it because these pets were so exotic and so expensive, it was a sign um, uh, it, it, of who you were uh, and that you could afford uh, a marmoset, which was a fairly rare monkey. Uh, I think at the time, even amongst you know the the populace of monkeys then in in royal houses in in Europe, uh, and it says you know look at me. Um, I'm um, a queen of Scotland um, uh, and I can afford to have this this pet. Uh, and it says a great deal about the wealth and the prestige of the Stuarts. The painting you're referring to, Steph, um, is actually a copy by the Dutch artist Daniel Mytens of, of a painting that is now lost as far as we no, uh, the painting itself is 17th century um, and is is a copy. Uh, there's there's one of James the Fourth, which is also painted by Mytens, and which is also a copy, in which he's holding a hawk. Um, he he was like many men at the time. He he loved uh, hawking and and hunting with birds. Um, so um, and there may even have been a matched set. You know, his his wife. Um, uh, with a perhaps slightly more female pet, though Margaret liked um, hunting and, and uh, riding as well, uh, and the king, her husband, with a with, with a hawk, um, and that is um, it, it doesn't really symbolise anything more about the Stuart monarchy other than that um, they had taken their place uh, at the centre of Europe. They hoped, you know, by being able to demonstrate that, that um, they had exotic pets too. Well, our last question now comes from Into Light, and they just wanted to know if there are any private things of Margaret's in any museums anywhere. I know that we, I almost brought this up earlier when you were talking about how all her letters were gone with the ship, I think that you said. All yes, the letters all that, that all, well, perhaps all her private letters. I mean... Over a, a, a hundred more official letters that survive, as I said, more than any other Tudor monarch, in fact. But um, I, I mean, the, the thing that I would point you to, I think, is is uh, her Book of Hours. Um, as you probably know, most um, monarchs at that time, pre the Reformation, um, had a, a religious book um, which. Um, contained, you know, stories and passages of the gospel. Um, the most famous book of ours is the magnificent one of the Duke de Berry in, in France. That's, 
earlier in the medieval period. Um, a book of ours was commissioned by James as the fourth as a present for his wife. I've seen a facsimile copy in the British Library, which is quite impressive to look at. The original is in Vienna now, in, in, in a museum there. I think how it got there by a very circuitous route is uh, an interesting story. I'm not exactly um, certain how it did, uh, but it, 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 it did end up there. So that, as far as I can remember, is the only artefact um, actually connected with Margaret Tudor that I know of. Um, I, I could check. Uh, I'm, I could check the the thesis of Dr. Helen Newsom, who's done a huge amount of work on Margaret's letters, um, examining them and 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 looking at them from various linguistic as well as political and um, historical points of view. Uh, in which she's found a very different woman from the the sort of oversexed winger who was only interested in her wardrobe um, that is often presented and has been in in the past as as our definition of Margaret Tudor. I mean, here is a woman who was still prominent in Anglo-Scottish relations and diplomacy well into the 1520s and 30s um, and did play a role uh, and understood um, perhaps in a way that no one else could, the, the kind of priorities on, on both sides. Uh, and, of course, Margaret was interested in in dresses and jewellery, not just because this is a kind of girly thing, for God's sake. Uh, it, 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 you know, if you were a female um, monarch who wasn't interested in that sort of thing, you wouldn't have probably lasted very long. It, it was the visible um, aspect of your queenship uh, and to um, poke fun at someone because of this, I, I think is is really a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of queenship at, at this particular period of our, our history. As a brief aside, I would say that I don't think people get uh, get this still because I I um, gave a talk oh, some years ago now um, on a, a as part of a, a, I was a guest speaker at a historical tour that was organised by Alison Weir. And I sat next to a young American lady, I have to say, uh, at um, the dinner subsequently and sort of was making conversation and saying, what have you been doing? You know, what have you heard and all that? And she said, oh, well, this afternoon there was a talk about Mary, Queen of Scots, jewels and dresses, but I'm not interested in that kind of thing. And I thought, more fool you. You don't get it, do you? <laughs> I didn't say that to her. You'll be pleased to hear. Oh, I would have liked to hear the rest of it if you did say that to her. <laughs> I, I think I probably mumbled into my glass of wine and, and <laughs> point out to her that actually this was rather important at the time. Um, and it's a shame she missed it. Is in fact, the um, woman who gave the talk is an absolute expert on this kind of thing. Uh, and, and it did make me wonder you know whether anything had sunk in on this tour, <laughs> at least with this particular person. Um, but you, you know, it, it it is absolutely unfair to the point of ignorance. I'm afraid to have a go at Margaret Tudor because all she was worried about was um, what she wore and what had happened to her jewels. These were what made her, in the public image, a queen. 
Yeah. It sounds like you just needed maybe one more glass of wine and then you could have said it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think Alison would have been displeased. It's not the role of guest speakers under these sort of things to offend the guests. Uh, Oh, fine. All right. Merely to point out to them as subtly as possible that they might perhaps just be missing something. And, and, And that's it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us if our listeners wanted to find you or learn more, or read your books or anything like that. How can we do that? Um, well, my books, I think all of them, all five of them um, are still available um, on Amazon. Um, my, um, I'm probably in bookshops, uh, my current book, because, um, well, of course, for my last two books, I moved into the Stuart period. I'm now moving back um, uh, with, with Margaret because, well, there are various things I won't go into here, but um, I decided that she was a very good topic and I thought that, you know, a publisher would want to to publish her and I was correct about that. I mean, one of the things you learn over the years uh, as a, a historian writing for a more general audience is that you do learn what publishers want uh, and no amount of announcing that, you know, you've got a brilliant idea and all these, uh, you know, family documents and all that. I mean, publishers will go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if they don't think it's going to sell, they won't buy it. And I think a lot of would-be writers and would-be historians as well, uh, it is a hard truth but it is one you have to accept. Um, I've actually wanted to write about Marie Antoinette because I was originally a historian of the French Revolution, Um, but I couldn't interest a publisher uh, in this country. And there was a bit more interest in the US, but in the US now they all desperately want you to write a sample chapter even though you've published five books. And I'm sorry, but, you know, I haven't published five books in order to write a, a, a sample chapter for someone else. I'm just not going to do that. So any publishers listening to this can put that in their pipes and smoke it. Um, <laughs> having had that rant, um, which may be interesting to other people, um, my, latest, my latest book, Mistresses, Sex and Scandal at the Court of Charles II, which has got more about sex in it than one can ever possibly write about Margaret Tudor and James IV, um, that, that is available on online. Um, it isn't available in the US um, because um, American publishers seem to think that people won't buy books on the Stuarts, which um, I'm told by many American um, uh, people who've bought my, bought my other books is a load of old rubbish, but, you know, in which case they need to tell publishers that because publishers won't listen to me about it. But but you can get it. Um, uh, you could, certainly could order it from the book depository here, and, and there wasn't even an international shipping charge. Um, that was partly because of, of lockdown and COVID. I don't know whether that's still the case. But I think if you look on the internet, you can find that book. The, the, um, my three Tudor books, um, my, my first three books, are certainly still available. My, my book on um, the rivalry between the Tudors and the Stuarts um, is called Crown of Thistles in England and came out with a horrible title of Tudors versus Stuarts in the US, which made it sound like a football match. Uh, but again, uh, as a writer, you don't have any control over that. Um, if you can, I would buy the uh, British version because it's better printed and it's got nice colour pictures in it. 
Um, but, you know, you can get these books if you look around. I am on Twitter. Um, it's at Dr. Linda Porter one. I've no idea who Dr. just Dr. Linda Porter is, incidentally. I must look her up sometime. She's probably a medical doctor, I suspect, somewhere. Um, but she obviously exists or I wouldn't have been Dr. Linda Porter one by the time I got around to it. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and, um, it, you know, in general, I suppose, and I have an entry on Wikipedia and everything. So I am, I am out there. Uh, in the last year, I've done a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but a number of, of um, virtual talks. And I, I would have to say, Steph, um, uh, quite honestly, that particularly um, at the time of COVID, but also perhaps in the future, I, like a number of other people, have found virtual talks and this kind of, you know, podcast much easier to do than travelling, you know, 500 miles up to Edinburgh to give a talk. Um, it, it, it's very nice to be face-to-face with people, um, though one does get asked some rather strange questions from time to time in these um, uh, in, in these public talks. Um, for example, the first time I gave a talk on Mary, Queen of Scots, the first question was, did I know whether she was, whether Diana, Prince of Wales, was a descendant of hers? which completely floored me. Oh, it had nothing to do with anything I had said. And to be honest, I didn't know. So um, it, 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 I like um, I like giving face-to-face talks, but, but um, it, it just goes to prove how flexible we are now that we can do this sort of thing and you can do it over different time zones and in different countries. Uh, and although it is nice to interact with people, um, uh, it, it, it's also rather a relief sometimes to be able to sit in your own study uh, and, and do the kind of thing we've just done. So thank you very much for asking me. Oh, of course. We're, we're so happy to have you. And I'm happy that you enjoyed yourself. And I apologize on behalf of all the other American U.S. publishers who I'm <laughs> severely unimpressed with at this point. Um, not, not podcasters, I have to say. No, not podcasters. Not, not podcasters. podcasters. They're quite different. Right. I have no publishers on here with me, though. So I feel like I have to apologize for them. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.